0: This is The Guardian.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now
2: with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress
1: website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing.
2: From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress
1: wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com ACAST.
3: It's finally happened. After weeks and weeks of campaigns, hustings, and interviews, we finally have another prime minister.
2: I know that we will deliver. We will deliver we will deliver.
3: We're in the Palace of Westminster, near the House of Commons chamber, where Liz Truss has just finished her first PMQs with Keir Starmer. It wasn't hard for him to pick holes. How on earth does she think that now is the right time to protect Shell's profits and give Amazon a tax break? Yeah. Now, during the leadership campaign, Liz Truss initially sounded like she didn't like the idea of help from the state to get people through the energy crisis. But she now seems to have a plan to do exactly that. And it said it's going to cost at least £100 billion. Will it be enough? Who's going to pay for it? And might it be enough to mean the Tories somehow defy the odds and win yet another election? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Be Okay for the Dark. Joining me today are Pippa Kriar, if I pronounced that correctly?
0: You have, Kriar, yeah.
3: The Guardian's new political editor and the Guardian columnist and writer, Gabby Hinsliff. Hello to you both.
0: Hello. Hi.
3: Um, Monday, September the 5th, was a big day for politics in the sense that Boris Johnson disappeared at the sunset and Liz Truss took over. It was also a big day in millions of lives because kids were going back to school. It was my daughter's first day at big school. Oh. Was it a momentous and... Important occasion for either of you. Yeah, well,
0: my, my middle child went to secondary school for the first See, time, which, we're was, in a, the same which boat. was a big moment. And yeah, his little sister lamenting the fact that she's the only one left at primary school. So that was a bit of an emotional moment too. Mine starting GCSEs.
2: This is going to be the year from hell.
3: <laughs> it's a long time since I was at school, but I've got sort of ingrained in me from then this sort of anxiety about this time of year. As if everything's going to go profoundly wrong. This year, I'm actually correct.
2: I love this time of year. I love this one. It's all new pencil case. I, yeah, I'm such a what A new pencil case, absolutely. Slightly worried you've got the wrong shoes.
0: Those are my memories yeah, of school. Yeah, I think I find it quite a relief, if I'm honest. Does that made me a terrible parent. Because after no, six or seven ditto. weeks of the kids being around, much of it spent working as well. But in this, in this brave new world where we kind of manage during the summer recess to have kids at home and work, it's actually quite a relief to send them back.
3: Those last two days or three days or a week of summer holidays, you know, that last bit. You've
2: run out of ideas. There's nothing left to do. Everyone hates each other. It's time to clear the house.
0: My mum always used to say, only boring people get bored.
3: (laughs) Right, talking of everyone hating each other, let's talk about the Conservative Party Um, and the fact that Liz Truss has just taken over. Pippa, I wanted to ask you, this is all your fault, isn't it?
1: (laughs) This this turn of events
3: whereby yet another prime minister has walked. You broke the story of Dominic Cummings' illicit trip to Durham during lockdown. broke subsequent stories about Downing Street parties. Your fingerprints are sort of on this particular phase of history, aren't
0: they? Well, once in a blue moon, I get cornered by a Tory MP who says something similar, not normally in as favourable terms as, uh, as you're putting it, John. And my response to them is that there was only one person responsible for Boris Johnson's downfall, and that is indeed Boris Johnson. And when he took over, we all knew that he had some issues with how shall I shall put it, relaxed relationship with the truth. And I thought that if anything was going to bring him down, it would be that. And that's how it turned out.
3: When you got that first story of the famous Dominic Cummings trip to Barnard Castle. With and all the that, Guardian. With the Guardian. Let's just Never. pick ourselves up as well. How much pushback was there? I mean, people really bust in a gut to try and kill the story.
0: It was really interesting because throughout the whole thing, that that number 10 operation, which subsequently changed with with Dominic Cummings obviously at its top and then he and then he left ultimately uh they obfuscated they denied they even lied about what had gone on and subsequently i've been told that they didn't know either and actually Dominic Cummings didn't really Get want to get into it and i'll deal with this it's fine no one's going to be bothered about wow. this and then of course subsequently he was dragged in for this meeting with boris johnson and he sat down and tried to thrash it out and come up with a strategy and we all saw the result in terms of the uh that rather remarkable press conference in the downing street garden but for about six to eight weeks before myself and matt weaver who's the guardian reporter i was working with at that time were asking questions of government and it was like meeting a closed door and a locked door, in fact, and that they wouldn't give us any sort of background guidance or information or anything. So it was definitely a sort of an uphill struggle to get that story out.
3: Feels like a hundred years ago. Does it feel like that to you now? It really does.
0: I mean, there's that old adage, a week is a long long time in politics. Well, you know, at the moment, it's like five minutes is a long time in politics. Things change so fast. Talking
3: of which, today we will be talking about the new Liz Trust government, what it will look like, sound like, and what it's going to offer or not. We'll also be talking about what some people, not me, you understand, call Trussonomics. How will the new Prime Minister meet the cost-of-living crisis? Will she slash taxes and somehow grow, grow, grow? So, let's talk about Liz Truss's new cabinet. Who's in, who's out, and what this tells us. It's amazing to think to me that Liz Truss is the only remaining member of the cabinet who was in the cabinet under David Cameron. Out go all the Sunak supporters. It's just another great convulsion, Gabby. It is odd, isn't it?
2: It's a huge degree of churn and it makes for quite an inexperienced cabinet. You know, James Clever leavings as, as Foreign Secretary, you know, normally that's a sort of old greybeard's job for someone who's practically you know, being put out to pasture. And instead, you've got someone who's literally been in cabinet for about five minutes over the summer. You know, it's a huge leap. There is a sort of There's a lost body of knowledge or or kind of, you know, institutional experience that's gone. And that's been happening for ages, actually, because after Brexit, you know, had a big clear out of people who were associated with Cameron and a big clear out of remainers from government. And then the number of prime, each prime minister we've churned through, you know, their favourites have kind of gone with them. For, For the scale of the crisis we're facing, put it that way, there's a lot of quite novice ministers.
3: And to take your point about cleverly being the Foreign Secretary, I mean, it seems that only a matter of weeks ago, he was the only Tory at Tory conference who would speak to me when I was running around with a microphone. That's how junior he was. And, Probably now he's, talked to you now. <laughs> and now he's the Foreign Secretary. Were you surprised by any of the appointments, Pip?
0: I think we'd been so well briefed. Liz Truss and the number 10 team have kind of received these plaudits for it being a very tightly managed reshuffle. That's because we knew who everybody was going to be. So there was none of that sort of last minute, somebody sitting on a sofa for four hours and refusing to budge because they didn't get the job they wanted or walking out in great disgust and making off about the prime minister. I guess the main surprise, if you want, the big sort of takeaway for for me was not who was in the cabinet, but who was left out. God. And Liz Truss had been under such pressure... Um, and it had approaches from so many parts of her party to try and form us a, a unity cabinet. In fact, Number 10 themselves said that she was going to plan. One of the first things they told us was that she planned to have a unity cabinet. And what they say is that, well, we've got, you know, five Tory leadership candidates because we've given Kimi Badenoch a job and we've given Penny Mordaunt a job and so on. But obviously, they haven't given Rishi Sunak a job, even if he wanted one. And there's been this big clear out of, of literally every single senior Sunak supporter And one cabinet minister put it to me that, well, we can't have somebody in the cabinet that's going to be sent out to defend the government when they've previously mouthed off, not just about trust personally, but also about her policies, because literally every single interview they do, they're going to be asked about that. And there's a degree of truth in that. But given the scale of division that currently exists in the parliamentary party, she's got some major work to do wooing those MPs back. And if she could have, produce any sort of olive branch at this point when forming her cabinet, then that might have been a good idea.
3: I don't know for those people, but certainly for anyone looking in, there was something very provocative about, about chunks of this cabinet reshuffle. I mean, when you see Jacob Rees-Mogg being put in charge of the government's policy on climate change, when there is a stack of cuttings Gabby, that high in which he disputes the very idea of climate change, it is like they're kind of waving it in your face a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think that was the the standout shocker for a lot of people. Interestingly, actually, she's also put in Graham Stewart as um, as climate minister underneath Rees Mogg, um, which is a much more uh, conciliatory appointment. He's you know he's he's an MP for a part of East Yorkshire which has tons of offshore offshore wind. You know he's got a much stronger environmental sort of record than Rees Mogg. It's as if he's been put in there to to balance things a little bit. So I wonder if we'll see a few more junior ministers who sort of balance the load a bit. What I was surprised by actually or struck by was that Kemi Badenoch and Penny uh, Morden, as as people said, have both got jobs, but they're rubbish jobs, really. I mean, Kemi is international trade minister. So that's code for yeah, you'll be spending most of the year somewhere on the other yeah, side of the that's, world. Yeah,
3: that, very that hard identifies to, her as a threat. I mean, very get her hard out the to work, build a profile well.
2: when you're not in the country. And a lot of people, a lot of Tories, had wanted her to get a sort of big anti wook, you know, like education, education or, culture. or whatever, mm. have some something from which you could start a culture war, which obviously isn't happening. And Penny Morden, leader of the Commons, okay, so, I mean, she's here, but it's a bit of a housekeeping sort. Of Did job. you
0: see her face though in the pictures they sent out <laughs> yes. these little Twitter profiles with these portraits of all the cabinet did. and Penny Morgan looked utterly miserable in hers. Tom Tugendhat looks like
2: it looks like he's at a funeral as well. I mean okay he's becoming security minister maybe like party hats are not the order of the day but he would have liked Foreign Secretary job and isn't getting it.
3: Now something that's been talked about a great deal with good reason is that none of the great four offices of state so called are held now by a white man. Liz Truss is the prime minister. Kwasi Kwarteng is the chancellor. James Cleverley is the foreign secretary, and I missed one out. and Suella Braveman is the home secretary. There's the four. That is quite striking, isn't it? And it sort of asks awkward questions of the Labour Party. No, no doubt about that at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think it's. I think there are many senior Labour figures that feel actually really quite embarrassed about that. And you know, they sort of say, "Well, you know, we had." a couple of acting leaders in, Margaret Beckett and Harriet Harman, and we've got Angela Rayner as our deputy leader, and, you know, the top four jobs. We've got Lisa Nandy who's mixed race and David Lammy who's black. But let's face it, it is not the record that the Conservative Party has had.
1: Theresa
3: May at PMQs today was sort of taunting the Labour Party about this. She said this. May I congratulate my right honourable friend and welcome her to her position yeah. as the third yeah. Yeah. Of the United
1: yeah. United Kingdom. Yeah. Can I ask
2: my right honourable friend... Why does she think it is that all three female prime ministers
1: have been conservative? There's
3: one slightly awkward fact, which is that the post of of, um, Minister for Women seems to have almost sort of anonymously blurred into Minister for Equalities, and that's Nadeem Zahawi is now the Minister for Women.
2: It's, well, he's the Minister, he's Cabinet Minister for equalities. I mean, that's a job that hasn't all evolved. It was invented by New Labour as, as a Cabinet Women's Minister job.
3: Is that so, meant to send out a sort of anti-woke signal? I don't know
2: of... that it's meant to send out an anti-woke signal, but I think it's got something to do with... I think it, there's a particular brand of Tory feminism which Liz Truss really... Really taps into, which is different from Theresa May's, which is absolutely about saying, I don't want to be seen as a woman, I just want to be seen as a person getting on with the job.
0: And what the Prime Minister's official spokesman said repeatedly was that she believed that the public felt it was more important to see through actions how the government would support women, citing, for example, the Domestic Violence Offenders Register and other policy areas, rather than a title of a job. Now, obviously, there's very varying degrees of opinion on that, oh, including the amongst the party. The
3: I've never worked here. I come here very, very occasionally. I've never had many dealings with senior politicians, and you both have. So here's a question. What's Liz Trust like?
2: Good fun, on a personal level. Really? You know, if I... Yeah, she is.
3: We're in a corridor in the House of Commons. She's literally a corridor. Every time it's a different selection of people. One minute it's a journalist I admire, the next minute it's a team of security. <laughs>
2: Who's going to come next? Just makes it exciting. <laughs> Perhaps they can chip in. Sorry. <laughs> what was the...
3: Liz Trust, that. trust try like? That. Do you want oh, to join? We Here that. we go. go. Who's this now?
0: What's Liz Trust like?
3: What's Liz Trust like? Tell
0: us. What's Liz Trust like? Yeah. Um measured.
3: That's good. Okay. There's two adjectives <laughs> to throw <laughs> on the pile. From, from the Daily Mail. <laughs> okay. Well, he'd know.
2: What she like? <laughs> she's good fun on a personal level. I mean, as she's well as being got, As well, well as being determined and all the rest of it. She's got a sense of humour. You know, she doesn't take herself enormously seriously. All of that. Um, she obviously
3: does. She's ended up being the prime minister. No, takes Some, to take people, some people, when here, you so. say
2: takes so herself, some people are incredibly pompous with yeah. it, and she's not incredibly pompous with it. She's she's made a habit of cultivating journalists um, from the start, which is possibly one reason why she is where she is now. People always expect. Find it weird when you describe a politician as likable and think, but I don't like her policies. How can you possibly, how could she possibly be a nice yeah, yeah. person? You know, actually, most politicians are quite good at being charming. That's their job. Getting elected is getting people to like
3: you. Apart from Andrew Bridget.
0: Uh, so. Yeah. He's already put his letter in, probably. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say that. I don't know. Um, no evidence. But you can guess. <laughs> uh, she absolutely is driven. But what I think is really interesting is that while she's very ambitious, it's not the sort of ambition that you might expect from somebody as prime minister. It's certainly not the sort of ambition that Boris Johnson displayed, which was a kind of ambition for ambition's sake. He wanted the top job so he could be the main man. With her, it's much more about proving herself. And she's had her whole career, people kind of underestimating her and and criticising her. Many of them Many of them questioning her intellectual. I
3: was saying the most awful things about her. Dominic Cummings said that she was as close to crackers as any politician he'd ever met, which is an awful thing to say about anybody.
0: All that sort of thing and questioning her abilities in in office and all of that. And so for her, it feels like it's ambition to prove herself and to prove, crucially, her naysayers wrong. And I think by achieving this role by becoming the most powerful person in the country, you know, she's kind of done that.
3: Talking of which, it's fair to say that without going down the Dominic Cummings road. When you watch Liz Truss, or well, certainly when I watched her at Hustings and I watched her leadership acceptance speech, and I felt this watching PMQs on Wednesday, she's not the smoothest performer. I mean, you have to check yourself for a certain amount of misogyny and all that. Like, is it because she's a woman that I'm making these criticisms? But she's not fluent. There's a sort of fluency missing from her political that's, performance.
0: It has nothing to do with whether she's a woman or not. But I think there are two Liz Trusses, really, in that there's the Liz Truss that delivers speeches or pre-prepared sound bites for the dispatch box. And they do sound quite wooden, despite the preparation that's obviously been put in. They're a bit stilted. She kind of pauses at the wrong moment. There's big gaps and people aren't quite sure whether to laugh or applaud or whatever else, how to respond. And then there's the Liz Truss, this public persona that we've seen over the course of the leadership campaign, which is in interviews and in Q&As with audience members at some of the hustings, Mm -hmm. where she's much more able to talk off the cuff, much more able to come up with a sort of like a, unprepared witticism and have a sort of bit of banter almost and she seems much more natural in that sort of environment so i think they will think her people will be thinking quite carefully about what what public places they put her in you can imagine her tory conference speech going down badly because she's not good at that sort of delivery but you can imagine her doing a sit down with a journalist and actually it coming across quite well and quite naturally. so
3: Yeah, but the big theatrical set piece occasions are the ones people judge you on, right? I mean, that's the stuff that gets clipped for the news and all that.
0: I'd worry
2: less about the sort of, because you're right, I mean, you get a lot of attention for a party conference speech and everyone gets very excited about it, but does it determine how people vote general election? No. no. I think what I would worry a bit more about with Liz Truss is those moments when, as Prime Minister, you have to kind of rise to a huge national moment that you weren't expecting. You know, Theresa May with Grenfell, Tony Blair with the death of, you know, Princess Diana. It is a formal occasion, but you're having to engage, to judge the tone exactly right and to engage with what people feel and somehow articulate what everybody's feeling. That's the kind of thing that I think she's really going to struggle with.
3: As Boris Johnson walked off into the sunset, or I think he said he was going to crash land somewhere in the Pacific, like a used booster rocket or whatever he said, um, Rude way to talk about a telegram. I haven't had the benefit of a classical education. Now there's Liz Truss, actually, as well, as I understand it. But he made that reference to a Roman called Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus, Cincinnatus. Yes. Yes. You've had a classical education. Well, I
0: haven't. I've just been covering Boris Johnson for a long time. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> I've, I've heard this story before. You've heard this story before. I've heard Boris Johnson refer to Cincinnatus, or Cincinnatus, maybe, Gabby, I think it is, <laughs> um, many, many occasions. The difference is, is that this time, he um, was referring to the part of this Roman emperor's life that he returns to the plough returns to his farm leaves high office and and sort of gets back to his roots so you know the, the departure if you like but for many many years when he was london mayor and he was had his eye on the, t- the prize of number 10 and wanted to become prime minister he'd refer to the bit that happens after which is when Cincinnatus gets calls to return to rome and to return to high office so actually the re- the the reference to Cincinnatus isn't necessarily all about Departure oh. can also about still be about having your eye on the top job.
3: Let me say that I am now like one of those booster rockets that has fulfilled its function, and I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. And like Cincinnatus, I am returning to my plough. And I will be offering this government nothing but the most fervent support. That's why I brought this up in relation to Liz Truss, because it is said, and you can almost feel it, actually, that Boris Johnson will be a sort of presence somehow as she takes the reins and things begin to unfold. And there'll, there'll always be some sort of implied suggestion that, that the world may align such that Boris Johnson tries to return. You know, He's, he's sort of keeping an eye on everything. So he, he's so. going to
2: make Ted Heath look like a gracious loser, I think. Yes. I mean, it's going to be like a sort of endless sulk the one if I was his trust the one thing that would cheer me up is the constant talk about oh could he come back could he come back you know the circumstances in which he comes back are only if Liz Truss Fails, goes down in flames. It's all terrible. Now, what happens then? Most likely, Liz Truss loses the election. Do we really think Boris Johnson wants to come back and be leader of the opposition? That's just work. There's no fun in that. That's just like a massive, hard, tedious slog.
0: The problem is is that Liz Truss doesn't have time on her side and she literally has a matter of weeks to make sure that her energy plan is the right one to help people. And if it doesn't, she will... I mean, it's the single biggest issue facing her. She will be regarded as a failure and it'll be downhill from there. And whether she makes it to the next election... Sitting here now, it seems crazy to suggest that she might not. But look what's happened in the last few years of this Tory government. You could potentially see, and I think it's far-fetched, but you could see her doing so badly and Tory MPs getting so concerned about their own prospects and keeping their seats at the general election that they've been her through the same process that we've just seen, and they go for somebody that's got a bit of electoral stardust. Now, who can you think of that's got a bit of electoral oh, stardust I in the still, Tory party? I still think
2: it's incredible. What,
0: you, you take it sort of semi-seriously? That philosophy? I don't think I don't think it'll happen, but what I do know from his friends and some of those around him is that oh. Boris Johnson still thinks that he has another go in him. That's not necessarily right now. It might be a few years down the line, but he thinks he's been cut off at his prime unfairly, yeah. and while his friends may think he's deluded, that's the word they used rather than me, he seems to be think that that's still in him.
3: Okay, let's pause here for a minute. Up next, we're going to be talking about Trussonomics and trying to work out what her plan to keep people warm this winter is actually based on.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
3: Welcome back. Right, momentarily, let's talk about the world beyond politics. Something very weird happened on Monday. I don't watch daytime TV usually. I don't watch it at all, truth be told. But um, I know from my Twitter feed that on that day, on this morning, with Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, they had a spinning wheel quiz and one of the prizes was having your fuel bills paid we'll pay your energy bills got 1000 pounds as well so this is energy bills i think for 4 months if it stops on that nice uh, so how are your how how are your energy bills are you a bit worried about it all um major
1: yeah are you
3: oh got... I've got one of these prepayment meters, and it's absolutely murder. Oh, God. Right, well, let's hope it lands on one of those, then.
1: Whatever, right. you're going to win some money, Here so we don't go. worry. Here yep. we go. One way one way
3: or t'other. Here we go. Round and round it goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. It's
1: oh! your energy bill! Oh
3: my God. That's something from dystopian fiction, very Hunger Games. You wonder what else might be on future spinning wheels. A visit to a GP, perhaps. It's in that context that we await the big announcement from Liz Truss on what she's going to do to truly help people through this huge energy crisis this autumn and winter and beyond that over the next year or two at least. Um, Against the backdrop of double-digit inflation, we know that energy bills without government intervention are set to reach uh, around £3,500 in October. There's a real possibility of blackouts this winter. We have been briefed that she will uh, follow the lead, arguably set by Keir Starmer, among other people, and freeze bills. Pippa, what are the details, as far as you understand it, of what she's going to announce?
0: Well, given we haven't had the statement in the Commons, but we're eagerly anticipating that later, what we know is that despite the fact that Liz Truss started her leadership campaign saying there'll be no handouts and actually being quite scathing about handouts, she's doing exactly that. And not just any handout, but a whopping great big one. suggestion is is that there will be a cap on energy bills somewhere in the region of £2,500. At the moment, the energy price cap is just under £2,000. But if you remember, we're all getting 400 quid from the government to help us pay them. So effectively, the price level will be the same. It won't go up in October. There's some speculation over how long that'll last. It'll certainly be for three months. I can't see a world where we're in the middle of January and they decide to lift the cap and the bills go up then. So I think we're then into the six-month territory. And then you think, well, you know what, if she's... At the same time, focusing on energy security and security supply, which is what she said, that's a longer term ambition. Does she then just say, we'll help you with your bills for the next couple of years until the general election, quite conveniently, but also so that they have time to sort of make a start on some of those longer term ambitions? The key bit of it then becomes how is it going to be paid for? She's absolutely ruled out a windfall tax.
3: Pause there, because that was a real bone of contention at PMQs on Wednesday. I thought when it became clear that she was going to freeze energy prices, that she'd somehow sort of shot Thomas Starmer's Fox and he didn't have a line of attack. But he's got a very clear line of attack, which is that she is effectively going to load the costs of this onto taxpayers at the same time as the energy giants are sitting there making huge profits, that's an effective line of attack, isn't it? Oh,
2: it's an extraordinarily effective line of attack, because basically Labour can just say, she used to work for Shell, you know, she doesn't want the oil and gas companies to have them making £170 billion worth of excess profits, but oh no, you know, perish the thought that we should tax them in order to fund this, no, it'll all come down on you. There are two possible ways in which that could happen. One is what was being floated initially by number 10, which was the idea that, okay, everyone gets their bills frozen now, but we'll all have higher bills for the next 20 years uh, to pay it back, which is obviously wildly unpopular, unfair on younger people, because if you're old, frankly, you'll die before you ever pay it back. And otherwise, there'll be five-year-olds who never got the benefit, who are still paying, you know, high bills in their 20s. The other option is that they load more of it onto general government borrowing and don't load quite so much of it onto bill pays, which would be a lot more popular... But, you know, at some point, do the markets panic that you're you're ramping up all this debt? And if you look at the size of the package, and when we're talking about maybe 130 billion, that's at the moment, maybe more, maybe if you add tax cuts on top, maybe, I don't know, you know, we could be looking at 170 billion upwards too. And you're looking then at kind of, that's about the size of the, we're getting into the realms of the NHS budget size. You know, this is not something that you find down the back of the sofa. So... I was really struck at PMQs how adamantly she ruled out the windfall tax
3: we should hear some of that this is this is what happened at PMQ
0: I am against a windfall tax I believe it is the wrong thing to be to be putting
2: companies off investing in the United Kingdom just when we need to be growing the economy
3: there's the lack of fluency again um the thing that really struck me over the last sort of six seven days in terms of, of, of getting a sense of what the trust government was gonna be like, was something that she said when she was on the new BBC programme with Laura Kunzberg on Sunday morning, and that thing happened with Joe Lycett. She really gave a sense that she was a different sort of Tory leader, certainly from Boris Johnson and Theresa May. When she talked about the fact that she really didn't like the idea of redistribution, she said this.
0: To look at everything through the lens of redistribution,
2: I believe is wrong. Because what I'm about, is about growing the economy. And growing the economy benefits everybody.
3: See, that gets us into a conversation about levelling up in the sense that even if Boris Johnson didn't do much as far as levelling up was concerned, the sort of very term implied of some measure of distribution, right? That, that all the, a lot of some, some of the income and wealth that was concentrated in the rich parts of Britain was somehow going to make it into the less rich parts of Britain. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, well, this is significant, right? This is a sort of change of political theology. Going on, there's something very deep and important. I'm not wrong in that that understanding, am I?
0: No, I don't think you are. And it's worth bearing in mind that when Liz Truss has talked about levelling up, the phrase she uses is levelling up in a conservative so. way, and it's a you know it's a reference obviously to trickle down economics to sort of Thatcherite economic theory, which she uh, has really made the sort of central tenet of her of her platform for economic reform. Also, she has appointed a guy called Simon Clark to become levelling up secretary, who is a chief secretary to the Treasury, before a big trust supporter, but not a cabinet big beast, taking over from Michael Gove, who of course was a big political beast and had sort of, if you like, the political heft to make things happen and deliver on some of those promises that Boris Johnson talked a lot about. So it definitely feels like a shift. The one caveat I'd add is that while she is obviously an ideological beast, Liz Truss has also shown herself to be eminently practical and logical and, dare I say, chameleon-like in a Boris Johnson sense. In the, over the long course of her career, she's gone from being a Lib Dem to a Tory to Tory leader. She's gone being, from being a campaigning Remainer to a fervent Brexiteer. She obviously has the capacity to reinvent herself. And I wonder whether this might be one of those times where she's she's talking the talk, if you like, but when it comes to actually delivery, she's prepared to be a bit more flexible.
3: Leveling up hasn't really amounted to a hill of beans. Liz Truss is not terribly enthusiastic about it, as, as we've all discerned. And... Even though she's going to announce this big package of support, things are going to get worse in a lot of those places. The gap between so-called Red Wall areas and the rest of the country is going to get bigger, right? And then, in two years' time, the Conservative Party is going to have to go to Stoke-on-Trent and the northeast of England and the East Midlands and say, right, do you want to vote for us again? Because we're the people who raised your hopes twice, once in the Brexit referendum and secondly in 2019. And what have they got to show for it? There's a real danger for the Tories there, isn't there? I think from Choss's standpoint... We've almost
2: moved beyond an era where it felt to the Tories that, you know, the Red Wall was the focus of all their anxieties and that's, you know, lifting up the Red Wall and the rest of the country was kind of fine, but the Red Wall needed lifting up. I think she's looking at it now as this is a national crisis and you want you're, you're worried about your energy bills, whether you live in, you know, Redcar and Cleveland or whether you live in Bristol or whether you live in River Bloom in Devon. That's what everyone is worried about. Now you're absolutely right that, you know, the sort of inequalities that we saw before, if anything, been exacerbated by the pandemic, you know, we've seen some findings on that this week sort of certainly in terms of education. I think the geographical divisions are melting a bit in in her mind and it's become a sort of national, how do we solve this national crisis that we're in?
3: Is there anybody um, either in government or a sort of influential figure on the back benches, perhaps Pippa, who will somehow sort of keep the flag flying for red wall politics and the idea of levelling up and the, idea, and the sense that at least rhetorically it should have a bit of a redistribution-ish element to it?
0: Well, you do wonder what Boris Johnson might do, given he talked the talk, um, and it was his kind of flagship policy. He was elected uh, with such a large majority, precisely because of the 2019 Tory intake. They're the ones that sort of, you know, it's like 40 of them or whatever whatever it was, Um and you kind of wonder whether he might kind of recast himself as the unofficial leader of that group of Tory backbenchers from somebody that didn't ever really have a natural tribe in the Commons. Maybe they're his natural tribe.
3: I wonder about Michael Gove as well.
0: Well, Gove as well. I mean, he clearly believes in levelling up and he was at least a, a forceful politician. But <laughs> Why
2: can you, are you imagine? Laughing? No, I was thinking I I mean, if, Rishi, if Rishi Sunak wanted to really, really irritate her. That would be the Mr. Mr. He I'm the most, I'm the most northern chancellor since ever. That would do.
3: He's the man who said he, he cut the book, so Tom Wells got more I money. I honestly
2: don't think it's going to be a big figure. I just think it's going to be those Red Wall MPs. She has a lot of support in that. I also wouldn't underestimate people like Ben Houch and the, the Teesside Mayor. You know, that kind of, there's, there's a lot of local Tory politicians in the northeast whose careers come from it. You know, their careers are entirely founded on this idea and are not going to let it. Just let it slide.
3: Because as much as there is this sense of a move away from up, whatever it is, there was sort of one appointment that, that was a little nod to it, which was that Jake Berry has become a chair or the chair of the Katui.
0: Yeah, and Jake Berry is a Northern MP who is chair of the Northern Research Group. And yet another
3: research group. Another
0: research group is also actually a very close ally of Boris Johnson. Um, and he's been made the party chair. The idea being that the Conservative Party machine will be focusing already on the next election and that he will be well placed to kind of steer it in electoral terms, if not in policy terms, sort of invest in the right areas and focus on the right areas.
3: Right, last question to finish. It's a very obvious one. Should the Labour Party be worried? There's a lot of lefty group think, isn't there, about, well, trust is inevitably going to fall completely flat and, you know, this looks like an awful government already. I mean, there's a great ocean of it, right? And that, Always strikes me that when the left of politics says things are going to be great for the left of politics, it always turns out to be the opposite. Nothing is quite as complacent as the as the left of politics faces with what it thinks is an awful Tory government. It never quite works out that way, or will it this time?
0: Well, there's a lot of this stuff about it around you know, Labour can't underestimate Liz Truss. So in the conversations I've had, Labour aren't underestimating Liz Truss. I mean, Keir Starmer told the PLOP, uh, which is the Labour MPs on Tuesday night, that they're not going to do that. He described her as a talented politician who's got to the top through hard work and determination. She's nobody's fool. She'll do whatever it takes to keep them in power. She'll dominate the news for weeks to come. I mean, they know what they're up against. They're very conscious of the fact that she's a woman, and that at the early stages of the leadership contest, Rishi Sunak came across as a bit sort of mansplaining and talking over her and all that sort of thing. And they've determined that Keir Starmer is not going to make that same mistake. And I thought we saw a bit of that in PMQs. So I think they are aware of the potential dangers and also of where she may succeed.
3: And whether by accident or design, What she's going to propose on Thursday is going to go down pretty well with a lot of people, particularly as she herself has downplayed expectations. Because two months ago she was saying no handouts, right? And if then you come around the corner and says right, and you say right, I'm freezing energy bills, no question, people will think, oh, that's good. I'll have some of that.
2: I think just on the most basic level, a lot of people are really, really, really frightened about how they're going to manage this winter. And if government turns around and says, here's a load of, you know, here's a weight off your mind, you don't have to, you're not, you're not going to be paying six thousand pounds for your for your energy next April. The natural reaction is. Oh, thank God for that. You know, it's relief. It was the same the with the thing, furlough scheme, was so. Exactly the same. And you forget, you know, you forget, actually, that, that Rishi Sunak resisted furlough for a couple of weeks. And there was this kind of terrible hanging in the balance feeling. We've all forgotten that now because it happened. If you throw 130 billion at it, you're going to get some kind of growth, <laughs> I would think. There is a possibility of a sort of quick sugar rush of, you know, economic recovery that comes from just propping things up for that long and it may not be sustainable and it may all collapse in a sort of pile of debt and too much borrowing and sort of you know some kind of great black wednesday type thing but what if she holds it together just long enough to win another election and then the collapse comes the other side of it that's what i think labour's got to worry about
3: politics has arrived at a sort of fascinating mind-bogglingly contradictory point hasn't it that this person is a sort of self-styled small state Thatcherite right conservative the first massive thing she's going to do is to spend £130 billion of public money on a textbook case of interfering in the market. Life comes at you fast. Thank you both for joining us today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you out there for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and all the background noise. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week, the UK, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cucutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebterhaj and Kolchak. See you next week.